As you guys are taking your seats, I do want to ask if you are here this morning and are a veteran or currently serving, would you just stand and be recognized? I know Stephen uh, is up here, but he's going to stay standing. So would you just stand and be recognized so we can say thank you for your service? We do greatly appreciate appreciate the sacrifices that you and your family have made uh, to serve our country and allow us to do what we do, which is to gather here freely, something that we take, uh, take for granted, I think, too often, knowing that there are Christians all over the world who don't have the freedom to gather uh, safely in a public place as we do here in our country. So uh, thank you for your service. Uh, this morning here at River Rock Bible Church, we're going to be continuing our series uh, on By Faith. By faith is our theme for for this year that we've chosen, and we've talked about how we're going to take steps forward by faith. And the idea is that throughout this year, we would look through chapter 11, the hall of faith. These are the heroes of our faith that the writer of Hebrews is taking time to encourage the people that he's writing to because they're living in a time when they're being persecuted for following Jesus Christ, where it's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. And sharing the gospel is something that that is causing more and more of this persecution. And a number of the people in the book of Hebrews are deciding that they're going to turn back from their faith in Jesus Christ and just go back to Judaism because they decide, you know what, this is, this is too hard, it's too tough. I'm just going to you know, go back to what I know to be familiar. And so the writer of Hebrews reminds them of all the things and all the reasons why they can't go back because Jesus is greater. And he then gets to Hebrews chapter 11 and he says, think about all these people and all the stuff that they went through and they never got to see the fulfillment of the promise that was Jesus Christ. And you live on the other side of that promise. You get to see Jesus Christ. And so you can't go back. You've got to stick through it. You've got to have faith. Be encouraged by these people of faith. And so we've been going through, and we last week started in with Abraham. Uh, and he's, at this point in the story, he's still known as Abram and his wife Sarah, who at this point is still Sarai. And we looked at his story with Lot, how God calls him to leave his land, leave his family, leave his relatives, and go to a land that God would show him. And we saw how Abraham was not this, he didn't start out as this great champion of the faith. He was kind of a schmuck. Like he, it took him four times in about 10 or 15 years to finally obey God fully. And yet he's listed as a man of faith. And we saw that the test of Lot was the test of leaving And we have to learn to trust God's promises. We have to leave what's familiar. We have to leave what's comfortable for us and step out in faith in order to receive the blessing of God's promise. And so we talked a little bit about that last week. This morning, we're going to get to the test of Ishmael. And the test of Ishmael is the test of waiting, learning to trust in God's timing. And I think sometimes this is one of the hardest tests for us to learn. And next week, we're going to look at the test of Isaac which is the test of confusion, learning to trust in God's character. But today, as we look at Ishmael, I want us to realize that, you know, these three tests are tests that are going to come up over and over and over again in our walk with the Lord. And I've seen it in my own life, that there are times when God gives me a new challenge, a new calling, and you know what? I have to trust his promise that I need to follow him. Or he shows me something that he wants me to do. Or I'm praying for something that I'm desiring from him. And he says, you need to wait on my timing. So we have to learn to trust in God's timing. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 16 as we look at the test of Ishmael this morning. The test of waiting. Learning to trust in God's timing. 
Now, God has promised Abraham that he's going to bless him. And he says that I'm going to make you a great nation, implying that Abram is going to have children. And in Genesis 16, it's been 10 years. Abram is now 85 years old. It's been 10 years since God first promised him that he would have children. And he's been waiting. It's been about 10 years since he separated from Lot. Abram is now 85 years old, and Sarai is 75 years old, and the prospects of them having children are growing dimmer and dimmer. That old biological clock is ticking slower and slower and slower. And so Sarai decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands. She decides that, you know what, God promised us something, so we need to do something about it. I'm sure they were doing something about it all along, but she decides that that's not happening the way she expected, so she's going to take matter into her own hands. Chapter 16, verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarah, did not, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. What is she thinking? Giving her husband into the arms of another woman. Sending her into the bed of another, sending him into the bed of another woman. We have to understand the culture of that day. You see, in the culture of that day, a woman was defined by her family. And the inability to provide her husband with children was a stain on her reputation. And so Sarah decides that she can't live with this uh, stain on her reputation. The inability to have children would make her viewed as a failure as a woman. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. And and in that culture, uh, you could use a surrogate to provide children for your husband. If you were unable to have kids and you had slaves, it was culturally acceptable to take your slave and to give her to your husband so that he could have children through her. And any children that she would have would be considered your own children. And so Sarah decides to do something that's culturally acceptable, but is not God's original plan. And she steps into a huge mess. And what we're going to see is that failure to wait on God only creates chaos. Failure to wait on God creates chaos in our lives. When we choose to take matters into our own hands and step out and do something that is outside of God's perfect will for us, we're going to see that it's going to create a huge amount of chaos in her family. Women in her day who were unable to have children, it was perfectly acceptable to do this to them. But she never thinks, not once does she think about what it's going to cost her in order to do that. What do you think of Sarah's plan? I mean, she wants the right thing, right? God's promised her children. It's been 10 years. We don't have any children. Everybody else in the culture, this is what they do. So shouldn't we just set aside what God says and and make it culturally relevant? Can't we just do that? Can't we just take God's word and say, oh, well, this is close enough. Let's let's try to make it fit our culture. No, we can't do that. We have to rely on God's word. We have to put our trust, our faith in God's word and his ability to fulfill it according to his perfect will. Sarah wants the right thing. She wants the right thing. But she goes about getting it in a wrong way. Not once, not once does she consider 
the fact that her plan involves adultery and her plan involves stealing another woman's child. That doesn't seem to bother her because she thinks that she's doing the right thing. She's unable to wait for God's timing. Her fear is that if they don't act now, look, Abram, you're, you're not getting any younger. You're 85 years old. The potential for you to have kids, even with Hagar, is not great. We've got to do something now. We've got to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to see that, that this is going to cause even more problems. It's not enough that we trust in God's promise. We have to trust in his ability to fulfill his promise in his timing and how he best sees fit. We've got to learn that. Let's move on to chapter 16, verse 3. Let's see what happens. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram lived in Canaan, the land of Canaan, ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she realized she was pregnant, she, treat, uh, she treated her mistress with contempt. So what did Sarai want? What did she want? She wanted children. Why? Because it was a disgrace to not have children. She gives Hagar to her husband, Abram. And what does she get? Disgrace. Her slave begins to despise her, make fun of her, and say, I guess we can see who the real woman in this household is. She was trying to avoid disgrace. And instead, she gets disgrace. What does Abram want? Abram wants kids. But Abram is the typical passive husband who just goes along to get along to avoid conflict in his house. He's like, all right, honey, whatever you decide, you know, whatever you want, I'll do it. Right? And let's let's see how, how that works out for him. All he wants to do is keep the peace. That's all he wants. So let's see how that works out for him. Chapter 16, verse... Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and ever since she saw she was pregnant, she treated me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. So how did it work out? May the Lord judge between me and you. You are responsible for all of this. But baby, don't you baby me. Like this was your idea. No, shut it. You are responsible for this. What does Abram want? He wants to keep the peace. What does he get? No peace. Anytime we fail to wait for God's timing, it's going to lead to chaos. It's going to lead to consequences that we never even expected. In fact, things get even worse from there. Verse 6 of chapter 16, Abram replied to Sarai, Here is your slave in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Again, Abram is passive. He says, look, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to get in the middle of this. You figure it out. You, you do whatever you think is right. And so Sarai begins to mistreat Hagar. She begins to give her the worst jobs and probably scolds her. She can't do anything right. And so Hagar eventually runs away. Hagar is still pregnant at this point, but she runs away. She runs out into the desert, and there she's encountered by an angel. Of the Lord, And the angel says to her, look, God says you have to go back and you need to submit to your mistress because your, your child inside of you, uh, God has heard, heard your crying and God's going to take care of this child inside of you. In fact, he's going to become the father of 12 sons and those 12 sons are going to be 12 tribes and those 12 tribes are going to become great nations. Now Ishmael, what you need to understand is that Ishmael becomes the father 
of all the Arabs in the world today. His descendants become the modern-day Arabs. Isaac, who's going to be born later, all of his descendants become the Jews, the Israelites. Now think about the tension throughout the world today between Arabs and the Jews. All of it traces back to Abram and Sarai's inability to wait on God's timing. It's like the world's worst and longest sibling rivalry continuing on today because of this one couple's inability to wait for God's timing. Talk about chaos. Talk about confusion. Talk about uh, the thing that could have been avoided simply by waiting for God in his timing. Thirteen years go by. Ishmael's now a teenager. He's now a teenager. Abraham is now 89 years old and Sarai is... Uh, Abram is 99 years old and Sarai is 89 years old and God comes to him in chapter 17, verse 5 and God speaks to him and he says this. He says, your name will no longer be Abram but it will be Abraham for I will make you the father of many nations and I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. So God comes to him and he reaffirms his promise to him. Skip down to verse 15. It says, God said to Abram, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarah. For Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give her a son, give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations and kings of peoples will come from her. It's been more than 25 years since Abram left Haran. 25 years since he's separated from Lot. And God comes to him and says, now it's time. Abram, that thing that you've wanted your whole life, I'm going to give it to you now. I'm gonna, uh, you're finally going to get what you've always wanted. Now that you're 99 and Sarah is 89, I'm going to give you a child so that the whole world will know that this wasn't by your doing, but this was by my doing. And they'll know that only God could have possibly provided you with this child. There was something that you'd wanted your whole life. You'd waited 25 years to get it. And God finally gives it to you tells you he's going to finally give it to you, how would you respond? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be overwhelmed with joy? Wouldn't you be like doing backflips down the aisle? You'd be running out in your neighborhood telling everybody, look, look what, look what God's going to do finally after 25 years. God's going to give me all that I've ever wanted. Let's see how Abram responds in verse 17. Abram fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born Uh, Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? It just seems ridiculous to him. It seems ridiculous to him. He can't believe what God is saying. He's like, God, I've waited all this time, all these years, and now that I'm old, you're finally going to give it to me? I always think about that that T-shirt or that sign. You may have seen it. It says, if I had known grandchildren were this much fun, I would have had them in the first place. Well, uh, I would have had them first, right? So you think about that. Well, Abram and Sarah, 99 years old, they're getting not grandchildren, but basically great-grandchildren the first time around. I bet Isaac was probably like the most spoiled baby. I mean, you think about that, an only child uh, born to parents at 99 years old. That kid probably got everything he ever wanted. But you see that they've waited for this, and now he can't even believe what's happening. Now's the time that I'm going to give you everything you've ever wanted. 
This should be a time of joy. This should be a time of celebration. But let's see how Abraham actually reacts. In verse 18, it says this. So Abram said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. What is going on here? The problem is, when we fail to wait for God's best, and instead we go after our best, instead of waiting for God's best, what we find is that when God brings us his best, it seems like a threat rather than a blessing. See, Abram says, look, God, I already have a son. Let him be the heir. Let him be the one. Uh, why, can't, why can't it come through Ishmael? And God says, no, it's going to be through Isaac. But Abram can't see this as a blessing. He only sees it as a threat to the thing that he has created. Second best. Because he was unable to wait for God's timing. He, he starts settling for second best. Abraham couldn't recognize the joy of what God was setting before him because he had already settled for second best. And now God's best just seems like a threat to everything he had created. This past week, I was talking with my wife, uh, reflecting on about 10 years ago um, when I was coming out of seminary. And uh, we were talking about our journey into church planning and all the things that God has done through this journey. When I was in seminary, I was challenged by one of my professors that there needed to be men who were committed to lifelong youth ministry, that they would find a church, they would be in that church for their entire lives, their entire ministry career, and make an impact on that community. And I had grown up with about 10 different youth pastors in about six years of youth ministry. The average tenure for a youth pastor is 18 months at a church before they move on. And so I was committed, because I had experienced that, I was committed that, you know what, when we get out of seminary, we're going to find a church, and we're going to be there for the rest of our lives, and we're going to make an impact in that community. I created my own Ishmael. So when the elders of, of our previous church came to us and said, you know what, about three years in, three and a half years in, they said, we feel like God may have gifted you to be a lead pastor, and we want you to stay here until God calls you to a church, but we just want you to be praying about that. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. This is what God called me to. I'm going to be a youth pastor forever. I think you know how the story ends. But it took about a year and a half of praying and God working and moving. And I can remember my wife was 33 weeks pregnant. We were on our way with the triplets, by the way. Uh, so we are on our way to the hospital for just a regular checkup. And I said, hey, uh, what do you think about church planting? And she's like, what does that mean? And I said, well, that would mean that we would leave the church where we are now. We'd sell our house. We'd move to a different city where we don't know anybody. And we'd try to start a brand new church. And she's like, yeah, let me not pray about that for a little bit. Uh, no is the answer. I don't think I like that plan very much. We have friends here. We have a good job here. We have a home. We had just bought the house that both of us thought that we were going to live in for the rest of our lives. So we have the, the triplets. We ended up about three days later having the triplets. And we both committed that we would just start praying about church planting. And I, as I had been looking into church planting a little bit, I uh, found out about a church in the Austin area that had a church planting residency. And they um, they were very successful in planting churches, Hill Country Bible Church Austin. And so 
after we had prayed about it and we both felt like, yeah, maybe this is what God is calling us to do, I called the church and said, hey, I want to get in. When's your next uh, assessment? Because they have this big, long weekend of church planner assessments um, that is, uh, uh, you know, just the time that they go through and see, hey, are these guys qualified to be church planners? Which ones do we want to hire? And so I called and they said, well, actually, you just missed this year's assessment. You're going to have to wait a whole nother year. And I said, okay, um, what do I have to do? What do you need from me? They said, well, go ahead and send us your resume, and we'll keep it on file, and we'll call you. And I said, all right, but, you know, when do you guys really close off the process? They said, not till January. So this is April. And so in, I send them a resume, and I don't hear anything for six months. I didn't even get, like, a, hey, this looks great. You know, we're excited to hear from you. It was just kind of, I sent it in. So I knew that my stuff had to be in in January. They had some requirements that they wanted. They wanted this portfolio with sessions of me teaching and um, all this other stuff. And so I told my wife, I said, look, I don't want to send this portfolio in too soon because then we're at the bottom of the pile and they're never going to remember us. So we need to get it in like the end of January, right at the cutoff. I said, what we're going to do is I'm going to put my portfolio together and we're going to drive down from Dallas to Austin with 10-month-old triplets, and we're going to make this trip, and we're going to hand it in in person. So the church where I was allowed me to preach two Sundays in a row and to videotape it because that was one of the requirements. The first Sunday, I had two men with video cameras that I'd asked to record the message. Neither camera recorded the message. They couldn't get either one working. This is the first and second week of January, so I'm freaking out because now I've got to find a place where I can go and preach so that I can record the message. So I end up calling another church in the area, and they let me come the following week. It's now the third week of January, and they let me come the following week and record the sermon there. So then I go home, and I'm staying up all night trying to make these things look good, um, trying to put it together, put together a really nice portfolio, and I, I tell my wife, all right, I got it done. It's the last week of January. We've got to get down there. I wanted this in a week ago, and now it's going to be late. And so we get it together. We drive down there. A four-hour trip takes us six hours because we've got to stop and feed the babies, triplets. And uh, we're pulling in the parking lot. And the man goes, do you even know if the guy that you need to talk to is here? I was like, I don't even know his name. Let's look it up. So we pull out our phone, and it's like, all right, church plant director John Harrington. All right, so we're going to go in, and we're going to ask for John Harrington. So I go into the front desk, and I meet this nice lady named Debbie. She's sitting there and says, can I help you? I said, yes, my name's Charlie Turner. I'm a church planner um, looking to get into church planning, and uh, I'd like to speak with John Harrington and give him my portfolio. So she calls upstairs and gets the message that John is in a meeting. Have the, have the church planner leave his portfolio and go. It was what I did not want to do. I could have just mailed it. But I wanted to meet this guy face-to-face to show him how serious I was about wanting to be a church planner. So we end up talking with Debbie about our triplets because they were like the cutest babies you've ever seen. And on our way out the door, we're leaving. The phone rings. She picks it up and she says, oh yeah, actually he's just on his way out the door. Let me stop him. It was John Harrington calling down saying, hey, is that church planner still here? So she calls us back in and we sit there and we have this first face-to-face meeting with John. And uh, John looks at me at the end. I remember the last thing he said to me that day was, did you drive all the way from Dallas just to hand me your portfolio? I said, yes, sir, I did. And that was the last thing he and I said that day. I ended up in the next assessment and uh, ended up getting in. 
And I asked John when I was working there at the church during my residency, I was like, what, why me? Like, there were eight studly guys in this assessment, and you picked two, and I was one of those. Why me? And he said, you were just hungry. You wanted it. Like, you drove all the way from Dallas just to hand in your resume, hand in your portfolio. And then I found out one of the things uh, at the end of that conversation with John. And he said, hey, did you drive all the way from Dallas just to hand me this? I said, yes, I did. He goes, man, it was a good thing you didn't come last week because I was on vacation. So if I had finished my sermons when I wanted to, when I had done all the things that I wanted to according to my timetable, I would have completely missed John. I would have missed making that connection. I would have missed that opportunity with him. But it was all about God's timing. It was all about God's timing. And it took my wife and I some time to understand what God was calling us to do. It took time, but it was in God's perfect timing that he provided the opportunity for us to do this, for River Rock Bible Church to become a thing, to be a place where men, women, and children are hearing the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. So the question remains, how do we know? How do we identify the Ishmael in our lives? Because for me, being a youth pastor had become an Ishmael. It was something that I wasn't willing to give up, and it took time to overcome that. And it it took time for us to realize that the house that we loved, that we wanted to stay in, had to go. The friends that we had developed, they had to go. They were Ishmaels in our lives because we were not waiting on God's timing for the right friends, the right family, the right place to be. As much as we still love those people today, They'd become a distraction from God's best. So how do we know? How do we discern when God's calling us to wait? And how do we know that our waiting is by faith and not just a refusal to step out on faith? Well, I got a couple questions for us that I want us to look through. The the first question is this. As As I look at this story, there's three questions that really come up in my mind about Sarah and Abram and how do we know when we're waiting by faith? The first question is, am I doing everything I can do? Am I doing everything I can do? Uh, Often, God isn't saying to us, wait, but step out in faith. He says, I want you to take some steps and to do something. So he, he, he says, so that you may reap. So that you may reap. He says, you have not because you ask not. You don't have it because you're not seeking it, so you can't find it. The door's not open to you because you're not knocking. And a lot of times God's telling us, hey, you've got to get up and do something. You've got to get in your car and drive six hours and take your resume and put it in that man's hand. You've got to get busy doing what you need to be doing. Four years, River Rock Bible Church met in Village Elementary School in a cafeteria that smelled like a cafeteria. Uh, and there were classrooms that we had for the kids Um, but often it just felt like a dungeon where we chained them. And so we kept looking as an elder board like, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something better. And so we started looking. In every place that we looked, the door would close. Either we couldn't afford it, or it was, you know, the, the owner wasn't willing to talk to us. Everywhere we looked, the door would close. And then finally, my neighbor comes to me and says, have you ever thought about Georgetown Charter Academy where Grace Bible Church used to be? I said, no, not really. And she said, you ought to go talk, talk to the principal. 
And so I went and talked to the principal and said, hey, we would love to use your church. And he said, yeah, I would love for, you, uh, love for you to use our school too, but our district policy is that we don't allow anybody outside uh, to use our school. It's for school use only. So the answer is no, big fat no. My neighbor comes back and says, you know, we just got a new superintendent. You should talk to her. And I shared with the elder board, I was like, man, I don't know how I feel about going around this guy. You know, I don't want to create any problems. The elder board's like, there's someone above, her, above the principal. You go to them. You talk to them. So we go. And after much prayer and much conversation, you guys know the end of the story. We're here today. We're not meeting in a school cafeteria. Well, technically, I guess it is a school cafeteria. But we've got a, a much better meeting place with way less setup and teardown because we waited on God's timing. We waited on God's timing, and we also followed the steps. We, we got out there. We got busy. We started moving forward. We took steps of faith. Sometimes we took leaps of faith to get where God wanted us to go. So sometimes when God calls us to wait, we're still waiting on him to provide. But we have to be doing our part, taking steps, following him by faith. And one of our elders said something this past week that I really liked. He, uh, he reminded me that waiting is not whining. Waiting is not whining. It doesn't mean you just sit around and complain about why I don't have it yet. But sometimes we do have to take action and follow the Lord. But how do we know we're taking the right action? Because remember, Sarah took action, and it wasn't exactly good action, was it? So, second question is this. Would I have to disobey God's commands or compromise what I know is right? The problem with Sarah's plan is it involved adultery, and it involved stealing another woman's child. Let me say this. God is as concerned with the process as he is with the product. God is as concerned with the process as he is with the product. The end doesn't justify the means. If you have to disobey God or violate your conscience, then it isn't what God wants you to do. Don't go against God's command to make things happen. Keep waiting. If you have to say, well, I've got to violate God's commands, I have to violate my conscience, even if the rest of the culture is doing it, then it's the wrong move. It's the wrong move, and you just need to wait. Keep praying, be patient, and God will provide. Last one is this, am I settling for second best? Am I settling for second best? Ishmael was not God's best, Isaac was. And there's a temptation when we have to wait, when we have to wait on God that the first thing that comes along, we reach out and grab it, rather than wait for the best thing. The first job opportunity, we reach out and grab it. The first girl that comes along, we reach out and marry her. Or the first man that comes along, we reach out and and marry him. When really God was telling us, you need to wait. You need to wait. You need to be patient. I have something for you. We've got to understand that we can't settle for second best when it comes to what God has in mind. When it is God's time, God will do the impossible. He will provide the impossible just as he did with Abram and Sarah. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. When we're waiting by faith, there's a lot of time that we spend hoping. Now, understanding hope in the biblical sense, hope isn't like, man, I hope I get this for Christmas. I hope I get this for Christmas. Hope is patiently waiting 
for, for a promise to come true that you know will always, that has already come true because God has promised it. So when God has called you to something, you can trust and know that he's going to come through. And your hope is simply looking forward to the day that he fulfills that. A life that is lived by faith is one that involves a lot of waiting. It takes courage. It takes patience. And we have to be sure that we don't get ahead of God. Don't put together your own Ishmael. Because it will only lead to chaos. And then when God's best does show up, it won't seem like a blessing but a threat. What are the Ishmaels in your life? Is there anything, any area of your life where perhaps you've settled for second best instead of God's best? Is there any area of your life where you find yourself running ahead of God, trying to make things happen, compromising what God's word says, compromising what you know to be right, saying to yourself, well, I know this isn't exactly right, but you know everybody else is doing it this way, so I should do it this way too. Are you willing to wait for God's best? Can you wait by faith, trusting not only in God's promise, but also in God's timing? Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would reveal Ishmael's in our lives to us. Those areas of our life where we fail to wait on you, where we choose to run ahead of you, to try to make things happen in our own time rather than trusting your timing, your ability to fulfill the promise, promises that you've made to us. Lord, help us this week to rely in patience on you, to wait in hope for the fulfillment of your promises. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.